Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The horrors of London's crime and punishment have nowadays become that of myth and legend. The city has a nasty reputation for not looking kindly on those that have wronged it, and throughout the ages, the streets have run red with the blood of its enemies. Those that have been made to pay for their crimes have found themselves in precarious positions, putting their life, and death for that matter, in the hands of their executioner. But what happens when this goes horribly and horrifically? wrong. Today on Macabre London, we uncover episode two of the gruesome tales of crime and punishment in the capital city. and welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Drews, your host with a silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, then please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also, if you haven't already, please check out my other show with Cheryl Hole from Drag Race UK called Killers, Cults and Queens. So if you want more of me and also the Queen of Essex, please check it out now. The link is in the description. And thanks so much for listening if you have already. We're bowled over with the kind words and support you've shown us since our launch. And I'm really glad you're enjoying the show. Also, if you're not sick of me by now, then I'm also guesting on the latest episode of the Possibly Paranormal podcast, talking about my favourite film, 28 Days Later, and how it relates to London, and also exploring a chilling ghost story from one of the locations of the film. And 
backing it up with some pretty compelling research as to why it may or may not be true. So please do go and check that out. It's a really fun podcast. executioners in London has a history of being tumultuous and an unenviable task. And yet for some people, they decided this was their ultimate job role and underwent the full training for it. Others, however, found themselves unwittingly thrown into the role as a part-time job. For those about to be executed, knowing that the person who is about to carry out the role is well-trained may well be a source of comfort in the face of a horrific end. But, as with all jobs, there has to be a first day, and with that comes plenty of nerves, and perhaps not the swiftest or cleanest of executions. The role of the executioner has taken many guises in the history of crime and punishment in London. Some men, as it was always men and never women in England, only carried out the work as and when it was required of them, and it wasn't their primary source of income. As there were gaps between executions, sometimes for months at a time, whoever was chosen may just not have been 100% up to the task. In some cases, if an executioner couldn't be found, then prisoners would be put in charge of executing their fellow convicts, putting them in the hands of someone who wasn't trained at all. People were picked and assigned as a result of their day-to-day job, or through a family lineage of executioners. Butchers were often picked as they had an understanding of chopping meat, and those that were born into executioners' families often had no other choice than to go into the profession. Executioners' families were often persecuted for their profession, despite them not having chosen the career path themselves. Considered to be a bad omen to have executioners living in normal neighbourhoods, those that were in charge of performing the horrific deed were often either given specific housing by the monarch at the time and could live a relatively easy life in the grounds of a grandiose royal home, or they were banished to the outskirts so as to not upset those living within the city walls. Having an executioner be visible on a day-to-day basis was very risky, as particularly during the 16th and 17th centuries, over 35,000 people were given the death sentence. However, as the offences for which they were convicted were often so petty, such as minor theft or badly behaved children, thousands of these didn't end in execution. More minor offences were commuted to what were deemed to be more suitable punishments, such as forced labour or given military duty. However, at least 7,000 people were executed during that time for offences that would later be deemed too minor to issue the death sentence for, and for this, people were understandably angry, particularly those who lost loved ones, and so the executioner was the one who would bear the brunt of the public animosity. The ending of someone's life in public was an arduous and harrowing task which had to be carried out with the utmost precision and skill. If there was even a slight mistake, the crowd were well within their right to storm the scaffold and take out their frustrations upon the executioner. For one executioner, he had to lay low for a while after not one, but two of his executions went horrifically wrong. And today, our tale explores the horrors of these two events. Back in 1649, 11 years before he would ascend to the throne in 1860, the Merry Monarch, King Charles II, welcomed a son into the world, James Walter. 
The birth would have been a happy one if this was done within the royal family, but as it was, Charles wasn't even married, and this would be the first of what would come to be 11 illegitimate children he would have with a variety of different mistresses. Charles never did sire any official royal children with his one and only wife, Queen Catherine, and instead, over time, had to bestow his bevy of bastards with retrospective titles, and baby James would be the first to fight for royal recognition. Charles, who was the Prince of Wales at the time, had been sequestered to the Netherlands on royal business, and it was here the 18-year-old prince started courting the equally aged Lucy Walter, a Welsh noble lady, and before long, she found herself pregnant. Nine months later, Lucy gave birth to a baby boy on the 9th of April 1649, who she called James, and she notified the prince of his arrival. He immediately tried to nullify and refute that the boy was his, but all the evidence pointed to him as the father. As time passed and Prince Charles became the King of Scotland the year his son was born, he knew he would have to clean his slate before his ascension to the throne to become the King of the whole of the UK. As an illegitimate child, James also didn't have any entitlement to the throne, and the only way he would be able to make a claim to it was if there was proof his mother Lucy was married to Charles. To try and stamp out his past, Charles asked some of his men to get rid of nine-year-old James by kidnapping him and sending him to France. However, not entirely heartless, the young boy was set up with somewhere to stay and a good education, in the hopes that he would simply disappear. But two years later, James made his way back to England, and of course his mother was livid he'd been stolen and deported, so she of course rightfully kicked up a huge fuss and outed the king. As she knew, the only way James could be given his royal recognition was if she and his father had been married at the time of conception, she began to imply there was some kind of marriage contract agreed to. There was no such proof, but it was highly implied to the public that there may have been some kind of wedding, as the scandal of having marital affairs without one would have been enough to cast scorn on the king. Whilst the claims were being made, Charles tried to sweep everything under the rug as he was set to marry his first and only wife, Catherine of Braganza. What with the 13-year-old boy and his mother causing quite a fuss and the scandal being the talk of the town, the king decided he would give James a title to shut him up. He gave him the title of the Duke of Monmouth, and from that day forward, James was now a part of the official royal family. At the age of just 14, James, the new duke, married a girl named Anne Scott. Rather interestingly and progressively for the time, James took his wife's surname, making him James Scott. As the young duke was seemingly quite progressive and somewhat more switched on to the social feeling towards the royals, the general public liked him and saw him as somewhat representative of themselves. As time went on, King Charles grew to understand that James was actually quite useful in keeping the public on his side, and so he gave him the important role of being head of the country's protection. James had a very successful military career, and unlike many other royals who would stand on the sidelines, the Duke got involved and fought in many battles and was said to be a master horseman. However, over the years, James was becoming more hellbent on securing his place on the throne, 
and as his father had basically provided him with all the training and tools to do so, he'd effectively given James all the power he needed. James started plotting to overthrow his father and to take his place on the throne. But things didn't go so well off the bat. After sneaking suspicions James might be up to something, his first plot was foiled and James was exiled to think about what he'd done. He was sent back to his birthplace in the Netherlands, but whilst he was there, the embers didn't fizzle out, and James was still keen to overthrow his father. He drummed up support from not only Holland, but also back in the UK, and before long, he set his plan in motion. Across Scotland and also England, civil unrest was beginning, and James used this growing resentment towards the king to push his own agenda. James had the support of the common man on his side, and he also had the arsenal of the army behind him. He had the rebel power of the country at his fingertips, and day by day, it was gathering speed. James's uncle, who was also called James, was also looking to take the throne, and as their father and brother Charles had suddenly been taken ill, the two factions were set for war. Charles passed away on the 6th of February 1685 after suffering from a short but fatal battle with kidney failure. With the king now dead, James's uncle, the Duke of York, was technically the next in line. But James was incensed, as if he had been legitimate, it would be him taking the throne. James II quickly took his brother's place, and James the Duke was livid. As James's father Charles had been Protestant and his brother James was a Catholic, this caused more civil unrest as people were worried that they would have to convert to Catholicism. Young James was also a Protestant and so he received a lot of backing from those wishing to keep their religion and also their lives as it was more than likely those that didn't willingly convert would be executed. Now, at this point, we have two men fighting who are both called James, so to avoid it getting too confusing, I'm just going to refer to young James as Monmouth and James Senior as the King. And I bet you wish you had something to help you focus with all these names flying about, don't you? Well, it's time for me to have a little chat with you about the marvellous magic mind. I'm so pleased you all loved them last time, and you know I love this little super drink which helps me so much with writing my episodes and my overall focus, so I'm really pleased to say they've partnered with me again. Now, I love coffee, and it's an important part of my daily routine, but if you're like me, that might leave you lying awake at night, which isn't great. I'm not sold on the effects of coffee as it makes me a bit jittery and makes my focus pretty bad, which is no good for writing my episodes as I can't get into the flow state I need. But after drinking a shot of Magic Mind in the morning, I can honestly say it makes the world of difference. I can get things done in a fraction of the time they would take me before as I simply just get on with it now instead of faffing around. And I 100% attribute that to Magic Mind. After using these little green shots for just a few days, I saw a huge improvement in my ability to focus and more importantly, stay focused. You know that on the show, I have to often rake over very dry and difficult to read documents, panning for the gold, which actually makes it into the episodes, but it can be a very tiresome process and it's easy to get distracted and pick up my phone and waste time, but Magic Mind gives you that direct focus you need to get through it. 
When I've had a shot of Magic Mind in the morning, about an hour before I start my script writing, I really find it helps me to just breeze through the boring bits and to retain the info I need to create my episodes, which caffeine was only really hindering me with before. The little shots, which are so cute and dinky, have a balance of nootropics and adaptogens inside, including lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, which are proven to help with clarity and focus, along with a nice helping of green tea. What I've done with my magic mind in the past is to mix it into a latte with a little bit of extra agave to give it some more sweetness, but honestly, I've been a little bit lazy with it recently, and I've just been opening them up and drinking them straight from the bottle, and as they're so small and easy, you can take them with you and have them on the go. I would never recommend anything that I don't actually like myself, so you're safe in the knowledge that this is an excellent way to start your mornings, and I honestly feel this has really helped me to be able to concentrate better for longer and to contribute to bringing you the episode you're currently listening to. If you're interested in trying Magic Mind for yourself, then you can get a whopping 40% off a subscription, which is the best deal, or 20% off your first one-time purchase by visiting the Magic Mind website at www magicmind.co forward slash macabre and using my offer code macabre. The 40% off code is only valid for 10 days. So if you want to get that 40% off and to try it for yourself to start on your better focus journey, you'll have to be super quick. That's www.magicmind.co forward slash macabre and use my offer code macabre. That's M-A-C-A-B-R-E. Thanks for listening. And back to the episode. Monmouth was upset by the threat of the sweeping change to Catholicism, and as such, he began expanding his rebel army, investing money and adding to his arsenal with military gear, building up a defence of epic proportions. He began travelling back from the Netherlands, and every step of the way, he gathered more people and more weapons. When he set foot back on British soil in Dover, the local Protestant people welcomed him and didn't take much convincing to join his unofficial army. And by the time he reached Bridport in Dorset, he had amassed upwards of a thousand people. But the rebels weren't going unnoticed, and the king had got word of what was happening, so he sent an army to intercept and wipe out Monmouth's advances. However, even though the king's army outweighed Monmouth's, the rebels succeeded in the battle and moved on to collect even more opponents. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As Monmouth went from town to town, he gathered plenty of support for his bid for the throne, and others travelled to Dorset to join him. By the time he reached Sedgemore in Dorset, his army of the common man was in the thousands. The king had assembled even more men to fight this time, and went more prepared for the battle. He sent thousands of men to stop the advances of Monmouth's army, and at Sedgemore the two warring factions met, and an almighty battle erupted. 
The king's men, who were trained and organised in military manoeuvres, outclassed the rebels, who had only just banded together. Despite Monmouth being a skilled military man, he could only work with what he'd been given, and as such, the lack of skills and unprofessional actions of his misfit militia led to his downfall. The battle started off rather hurriedly when two of Monmouth's men went off half-cocked when they were disturbed crossing a bridge. They fired at the king's men and thought they'd got away with it, but soon an army of 3,000 men appeared on the horizon, ready to do battle. The camp of Monmouth's 4,000 rebels leapt into action, and under the cover of darkness, the two sides fought. The king's men were mainly on horseback, and this meant the rebels never stood a chance. Even though they hugely outweighed the royal army, their lack of horses meant they were easy to pick off. When the final blows were struck, the king's army had taken over two and a half thousand lives, whereas the rebels had only taken around 270. With the battle all but done with, the remaining rebels were rounded up and imprisoned for their crimes. But after picking through the carnage of the battlefield, their leader, Monmouth, couldn't be counted among the dead. During the fight, Monmouth had made a swift exit, gone and got changed into some of his fellow rebels' peasant clothes, and rode his horse out of the village. Now defeated, Monmouth knew there was going to be a bounty on his head, and if he was going to have another crack at taking the throne, he'd have to wait to gather more men, more weapons, and, having just learned from the last battle, more horses. Monmouth made his way to the New Forest in Hampshire, and laid low for a few days. However, even in his peasant disguise, he knew his face would be recognised by others, and so he couldn't stay at any lodgings or buy food, as he knew he would be rumbled. After a few days of hiding, Monmouth was starving, so he stole some peas from a garden in Ringwood. But his stealing didn't go unnoticed, and the old lady that owned the property told authorities when they came looking for a man of Monmouth's description that she saw him stealing peas from her garden. The men searched the town, but Monmouth was nowhere to be seen. However, just as the king's men were about to give up, a glimpse of a coat was seen sticking out from a ditch. The men went to look, and lo and behold, it was their nemesis, Monmouth. The man who dragged Monmouth out of the ditch was horrified to confirm it was him, as the two had been friends during their time in the military and effectively, he'd just signed his death warrant. Those in the town were sympathetic to Monmouth's plight, and the woman who turned him into the king's men was completely shunned from the village, and eventually forced to move away, as no one would trade with her, and her house sat as a decaying reminder for years after her departure. Now captured, Monmouth was hauled to the Tower of London, and his execution was set. There was no trial, and he wasn't given the chance to defend himself. During his time in the Tower, Monmouth tried his best to get out of his execution, and he even told his captors that he would concede to the king and convert to Catholicism. But understandably, the king didn't believe this sudden change of lane, and Monmouth's fate was sealed. Unlike many other executions, Monmouth was allowed to get his affairs in order before the day. He requested his wife and six children come to visit him before his death, and told them he would die still strong in his Protestant faith. He was also allowed the blessing of a Protestant bishop, 
before he headed to the block. However, not long before his impending beheading, Monmouth had learned who his executioner was, a man by the name of Jack Ketch. When Monmouth found out Jack would be responsible for his death, he suddenly went into panic. Jack had a reputation as an incredibly incompetent executioner, and any man who was set to die at his hands would be understandably petrified. Monmouth made sure he swiftly arranged for a handsome payment to reach Jack's hands prior to his execution, along with a note with words to the effect of, here's a tip in advance for doing a good, clean, swift job. To make a grand example of Monmouth, and as he was a prisoner of the Crown, he was set to be executed publicly outside the Tower of London on Tower Hill. People came in their thousands to watch Monmouth pay for his rebellion. His Protestant supporters arrived in their thousands and they were there to honour their leader and to make sure he had a noble death. Finally, the hour came and the unlucky Monmouth was led from the tower to the block. Once he'd made his way before his crowd of loyal followers, he greeted Jack saying he should strive to do his work well and even asked if he could take a look at the weapon that would be used. Monmouth remarked to Jack that the axe didn't seem like it was capable of doing the job, but Ketch reassured him and said as long as he didn't move, everything would go swiftly. The reason Monmouth was so disturbed by his choice of executioner was due to a botched beheading he had performed a few years before. Jack Ketch had been an official appointed executioner since 1663, but his specialism was hanging Ketch was responsible for a number of murders by Crown, and as he was also a butcher, he was said to be quite adept at using a knife. This led Jack to be heralded as excellent at what he knew, hanging, drawing and quartering. He was not an axeman, he was never trained in the skill required to cut off a head in a clean swoop, and as such, he'd been responsible for an awful execution performed on Lord Russell. Lord Russell was executed due to his involvement in the Rye House plot, a rebellion not too dissimilar to Monmouth's own. Along with a band of other anti-royalists, Russell had plotted against King Charles II when he was still alive as they wanted to stop his brother James, the Duke of York, taking the throne, but they were discovered and their plans brought to an abrupt end. Twelve people were executed for the plot, including one woman, Elizabeth Gaunt, who, instead of being hanged, drawn and quartered, was burned at the stake. She was the last woman executed in England for a political crime. However, those are stories for a different day, so if you'd like to hear about that plot, do please let me know, as it's quite the tale, and I think you might just enjoy it. Anyway, Jack Ketch was in charge of executing Lord Russell, and due to his title, he was sentenced to be beheaded instead of hanged, as that was the method reserved for those deemed to be noble or in the political sphere. Lord Russell was set to be executed at Lincoln's Inn Fields at a public execution, but unlike many other executions Jack had performed before as a skilled hangman, this one was set to be his first mistake whilst wielding an axe. Before he kneeled to place his head on the block, Lord Russell slipped Jack a bag of gold and told him to do his job well. 
Lord Russell steadied himself and awaited his fate. Jack swung the axe above his head and came down hard, but he missed his neck and instead caught the Lord in the shoulder. Russell screamed out in pain and even turned round to shout at Jack, calling him a dog. Jack swung a further three times before the job was done, and those in the crowd were horrified at what they'd witnessed. Ketch was so mortified at the literal hack job he'd done that he wrote an official pamphlet that was circulated as an apology to the Lord and the public saying he should be given forgiveness for how the execution had played out. Understandably, back on the scaffold at Tower Hill, Monmouth had this botched execution in the forefront of his mind, hoping since Lord Russell's horrific incident that Jack had done some practice. Monmouth placed his head on the block, said one last prayer, closed his eyes and awaited his fate. Jack raised the axe and swung with all his might, but straight away things went horrifically wrong. Only the tip of the axe hit Monmouth and his neck received a cut to the side of it. Monmouth cried out and turned to look at Ketch and he swung again. The second blow was equally inadequate and missed the target. The next few blows were also unsuccessful, and according to a few different accounts, Monmouth was struck anywhere but his neck, with some saying the top of his head was struck, and also in between his shoulder blades. Ketch swung again, and this time he actually hit Monmouth's neck, but the blow was not substantial enough, and only made a deep cut, and the Duke's body went into spasm. At this point, Ketch threw down the axe and tried to run from the scaffold as he was mortified and hysterical, but he was stopped and told to continue, despite his cries that he couldn't. Jack took a further three blows to do the job, and eventually the Duke's body went limp, but even still, Monmouth's head still remained attached. He then had to finish the job using a knife before he could present the head to the crowd. The whole affair was absolutely brutal, and the supporters who'd come to see their rebel king be given a dignified death were now obeying for the blood of the executioner. The king's men stepped in to protect Ketch as the crowd grew angry and he made a quick escape. Had the crowd broken through their defences, Ketch would have been ripped apart and torn limb from limb by the angry mob. Subsequently, Jack was promptly removed from the list of axemen, and never performed a public beheading again. After Monmouth's body was taken back into the Tower of London to be buried within the chapel in the grounds, it was quickly realised that an official royal portrait had never been painted of the illegitimate Duke. To make sure history had been created and the Duke solidified into the annals, his headless corpse was then stood back up and his detached head sewn back on to his body. However, having looked into this further, this may just be a tall tale, and I think we have to debunk this one, as there's no hard and fast evidence to prove that ever happened, but I can see why it makes it into the modern retelling of the tale, as it does make for a ridiculous tableau. The public spectacle of two such badly performed executions made Jack Ketch a household name, and for hundreds of years after, his name was used as a euphemism for botching something. His incompetency even made him a figure of fun in Punch and Judy, which was developed in the early 1800s, 
And if you're not from the UK and want nightmares, just look up a Punch and Judy puppet show because they are made for children and yet simultaneously terrifying. The two brutal public murders which Ketch carried out have mainly been forgotten nowadays, but for hundreds of years his name lived on as a shining beacon of incompetency. Despite him not winning his rebellion, the Duke of Monmouth still played a vital part in history and gave those who felt downtrodden by the royals a voice within the upper echelons of society. However, the crime and punishment of the capital ultimately had the final word. After Monmouth was executed, handkerchiefs were dipped in his blood, and he was revered as a martyr as having had to undergo possibly the most brutal execution in the whole of London's history. Thanks for joining me for this episode and thanks for being patient and waiting for this one to come out. I had a week's holiday and then I was called in for jury service, which was a bit more involved than I was expecting. So things got a bit delayed, but I'm back now. As always, I'd love to know your thoughts on this one. And also I have a few more crime and punishment stories waiting in the wings. So if you want at least one more episode about all of that, please let me know and please leave me a comment and a thumbs up on YouTube or a rating on your podcast provider. If you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed, I'd love for you to join the Ghoul Gang. We're a friendly bunch, so do come and join us. Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I make, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top-tier legendary executive Patreon producers Amy, Christina, Jess, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Sally, Sam, Sarah and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. Thanks so much if you've joined Patreon over the past few weeks. The little offer of getting a Halloween trick-or-treat pack from me has actually been really popular, so I'm extending it if you sign up on Patreon before the end of October and select the $10 tier. I think that's about £10 in the UK, possibly 8 Then I will pop a little trick-or-treat thank you goodie pack in the post to you. Also, in Halloween week, I'm going to be releasing some exclusive podcasts for your delectation and they will only be going out to patrons, so do make sure you sign up now so you don't miss out. If you're not up for a long-term commitment, then there's also my Amazon wishlist, which has items to help me make the show, and there's also one-off donation links in the description too, or you can use the ACAR supporter link at the beginning of the podcast. All support is absolutely vital for me being able to continue making the show, and thanks from the bottom of my heart for even considering supporting me. You're the absolute best. Oh, and huge thanks to Magic Mind for sponsoring this episode. Please check them out using the link in the description box. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.